Welcome to another episode of Broadband Conversations, a podcast where you'll hear from women working across the technology, innovation, and media sectors. We'll talk about what they're working on, what's on their minds, and what they think is next for the future. I'm Jessica Rosenworcel, a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission. And if you are new to this podcast, welcome. If you are an avid listener or anything like it, welcome back. My guest today is Harvard professor Iris Bonnet. She is the academic dean of the Harvard Kennedy School and the co-director of the Women and Public Policy Program, where she is leading a research portfolio on gender and technology. She also has written an award-winning book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. I'll let her tell you a little more about her work. And in the meantime, welcome, Iris, and thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Commissioner. All right. Well, let's get started with a little bit of backstory. So tell us just a bit about how you got to where you are today. That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, I uh, started out studying economics, and I've always been interested in uh, learning about tools that help me understand how the world works, how society works, uh, understanding some of the big challenges uh, in the world. And I've always been interested in gender, but I did not start out as a gender scholar. So I started economics, and then I became interested in combining economics and psychology, which is now called behavioral economics. Uh, It's a bit of a newer field, although now it's maybe 20 years old, uh, that is combining tools from both of these disciplines. And I have been a behavioral economist then for maybe the first 10 or 15 years of my career. And then in the last 10 years, I became really interested in questions of gender equality. And I, I think I became interested for two reasons. One was that I've always been a feminist that really cared about questions of equality. But maybe equally as importantly, um, I felt that I had some tools available that weren't currently used in the diversity, inclusion, and equality space. And I wanted to deploy those tools. And that's the book that you just mentioned, uh, is using insights from behavioral science to help us close gender gaps. Ooh, that sounds good. I like the idea that you're bringing the economics discipline to think about gender inequality. So this might seem like a completely basic question, but it's so fundamental, I want to start with it. Why does having more women matter to technology and innovation? I think there are um, you know, many good reasons for that. Um, let me maybe start first uh, just with the talent pool. So the tech sector is growing rapidly, obviously, as we all know, influencing almost every, if not every, aspect of our lives, of society, of organizations. And clearly, organizations, whether that is the public sector or the private sector or civil society, uh, want to attract the very best minds uh, to work on these projects. And so we just need to be able to draw from 100% of the talent pool. So therefore, you know, I think it it is a no-brainer that we need and want to um, have more women um, and more people, just more generally, more women um, included. But let me give you maybe two more um, thoughts. Um, A second one is related to the diversity of groups. And there is good research, um, for example, coming out of MIT, on the collective intelligence of teams, which shows very clearly that 
diverse teams, including and specifically gender diverse teams, uh, perform better than homogenous teams. And whether that is all women or all men doesn't actually matter. It really is that diversity that makes a difference and come up with more innovative solutions, for example, um, and um, are more productive and more creative. So I think there is this, um, you know, maybe more narrow definition of the business case as well. Um, And then thirdly, many organizations do point at our customers and how an increasing number of consumers is, in fact, um, female and that women are responsible for a lot of our consumer spending. Um, I think some sources say it's like three quarters. I don't know whether that number is the exact right number, but certainly uh, women do a lot of um, the shopping and um, uh, make a lot of those kind of household decisions. And technology is an increasingly um, important uh, part of those types of products that we might want to use and so we need uh, to design products that also appeal to women. And we, therefore, want to have more women on our design teams. I mean, have, just to give you maybe a more dire example, we, of course, have um, about historical examples where, for example, we ran clinical trials, so that's in medicine, only on male subject pools uh, to only realize that male and female bodies are not, uh, you know, created completely equally. Um, and, you know, it can be as um, as simple but also as impactful as um, just having more women in our subject pools, in our, uh, in, in our focus groups to better understand what kinds of technologies appeal to women, um, what kind of technology women need right. for their lives. So I think all, all three of those are important. So it is the consumer, uh, it is the workforce, and it also is the employee, the talent pool. Yeah, and you know, I liked something that you said early on, which is we need to think about technology as an input to every aspect of modern life, civic and commercial, and not just think about it as a sector or a silo on the side with its own unique set of products or workers. It's really throughout the economy. Oh, I could not agree more. I mean, I have recently been working a bit more with the financial sector, and I, it almost feels as if we have more technologists working in banks than bankers um, these days. And that might actually be a true statement. And this is not you know, empirically founded, but it certainly feels that way. So I, I completely agree. Um, technology is everywhere. So when I travel, because I get to do some of that in my work, and I meet with technology companies that are working on everything from spectrum to software, and some are big and some are small, but something strikes me everywhere I go. There aren't that many women in the rooms that I travel to. So that's anecdotal, and that's my experience, but I know you've done research on gender and technology, so you can tell me a little bit more about that, and also what are the goals of that research? What do you hope to achieve? Yeah, so that research actually came about uh, because Melinda Gates had heard about my book, um, What Works, that you mentioned before, and was intrigued by the evidence-based approach in the book. So what I'm trying to do in the book is really let data speak um, and inform our decisions uh, in our workplaces. And uh, the book is not specifically focused on technology, but more generally on kind of the workplace, you know, wherever that might be. Uh, But what it does is it focuses on how we can de-bias our practices and procedures in hiring, promotion, performance appraisals. 
And um, and that, I think, appealed to her, um, thinking that we should move beyond diversity trainings and, in, in fact, um, fix our systems rather than trying to fix mindsets. And that, that would work uh, in the finance sector, in the public sector, in the tech sector, you know, wherever we might go. And that's really what we have been doing. So that's the research that we um, are leading, that we work. Um, both with tech companies, so with some of the big tech companies, uh, to help them level the playing field for men and women, uh, debiasing everything that we kind of, you know, commonly think of as talent management, but also beyond formal procedures and getting into questions of culture um, and inclusion and how we organize our meetings uh, and, you know, who gets which work assignments, which opportunities, et cetera. So what you're uh, really one talking about, yeah, yes, what you're really talking about is, how do we take this data that we know exists and then implement it in the real world and in the workplace? You know, once you get past strictly making everyone sit down for some coffee and have diversity training, what does it look like? What's effective? And does your research have some data that uh, reflects that's, what really and truly works? Yes, no, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, and so and I, I might also tell our listeners, you know, how we do that. So we typically run experiments, and that is that we learn from the natural sciences um, and run, so to speak, clinical trials uh, in organizations where, for example, recently a company asked me whether they should, in fact, work with a tech startup uh, which had developed an algorithm, and hiring, al- hiring algorithm, which they argued would increase diversity um, of hiring. And so I get a call from this company and they said, you know, should we use them? And I said, you know, I know the founders, the neuroscientists, Um, It all sounds great, but, you know, you will not know unless you measure. So why don't you run your traditional hiring scheme, whatever you currently do, maybe you do do CV evaluations, maybe you have some other tests that you apply, Um, do what you always do, but in parallel, also have all of your applicants go through uh, this other tool and then you see what the outcome uh, would have been if you had just used your traditional mechanism as compared to what the outcome would be if you used new mechanism. And that's the work that we do. So that's also my research. But this, you know, my particular example was a real kind of just a real application. This, I didn't actually study this, but that's how we measure what the outcome of a particular tool is. And that is maybe my biggest message here, that we have to do a much better job, uh, not just, you know, dreaming about the kinds of things that could work, but in fact measure their their impact. And so what does work uh, is a much more optimistic about things that focus um, on systems rather than on mindsets. So for example, um, many organizations, not all, and I have to be very clear here, but many organizations have seen huge benefits from blinding themselves to the names on resumes. So making sure that they're not influenced by, for example, racial or gender stereotypes that go along with, for example, um, thinking of an engineer, we're more likely to think of um, a male per- a man um, right. rather than a woman. Um, and so but, blinding can, you know, can be um, um, effective. So it's, kind of, out, it's yeah. kind of like um, when they talk about auditions for an orchestra. And they strictly yeah. make you listen and not actually look at their performer so that you just truly evaluate their competence for the job without letting those inherent biases we all have filter into the evaluation. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, and, but, you know, you can do many more things. So the, the good news about technology is 
it you know is a sector where we have many particularly challenging um, environments for women's advancement. But on the other hand, technology is also part of the solution. So, for example, uh, people have developed algorithms which help us debug the language in our job advertisements, but also in our performance appraisals. So, I mean, anything that we write. And uh, many, uh, many, many companies now um, use these algorithms to understand how their job descriptions will appeal to men and women, respectively. So that's another tool that, for which we have pretty good evidence that it's actually working well. So what's really surprised you in your research? You've had any aha moments with all that you've studied and done? Um, you know, it, it's a very good question. Um, maybe the biggest surprise was that uh, it is how complex it is uh, to work with um, big organizations on those types of interventions. So one would think, oh, you know, we just need, for example, your promotion data, and then we can see whether there are gender gaps in promotions, controlling for people's performance, and then maybe we could um, introduce a, um, a fix for this. Um, what surprised me is uh, how, um, how should I say this now, <laughs> politically, but how unequal data collection, the quality of the data is in many, many big organizations that for many companies it is impossible to recreate performance appraisal data for the last five years. So they just haven't collected it in any systematic way or they haven't collected kind of promotion data in any systematic way. So we can't actually tell them, you know, whether given the pool of available talent they had uh, and could have promoted, whether they have a gender gap or not. That was a big, I mean, as I say, I'm an economist by training, that was a big surprise for so me. is that um, because so much of those promotions are about, you know, vague notions of potential or corporate fit and things like that, and that it doesn't get recorded in some data-centric way? Or is that just a practice that they don't spend a lot of time on? Both. So I think uh, traditionally, sadly, uh, the rigor that we might have applied in our engineering departments or in our finance departments and even in our marketing departments has not always transpired to our HR departments. So I think partly it, we just have not been focusing on kind of our employees' data with the same kind of scrutiny that we might even have focused on our um, customers' data. Uh, so I think that that is one one of the reasons. I think the second one is, um, I mean, also one that you have just mentioned, and that is that some of the procedures were very intransparent and very informal and very subjective, and so we don't have a lot of information on what's happened. And then thirdly, going back to technology, and that's probably not going to surprise you, but uh, surprised me initially, that you know many of the big companies are still how should I say, is digging their way out of having a thousand different systems designed in different places, different parts of the world, not really communicating, speaking yes. with each other. Um, and uh, that, yeah, so that's also just a big challenge. I know digitization in our largest organizations hasn't fully occurred. All of our systems tend not to talk to one another. Um, sitting here in the government, I can tell you there's some truth in that. Yes, um, I imagine <laughs> All right. So I like to close things out by asking everyone a few questions at the end. The first is, what's the first thing that you did on the Internet? That is such a good question. 
question. Um, I don't know what the first thing was I did on the Internet. I have to say Google probably was early on in my life, kind of Google searches, looking for things. Um, I don't know whether that was my very first thing, but I, I do remember, and, you know, probably not. So I don't know what my first thing was, but I have this vivid memory of thinking that what amazing search tool, um, uh, search tools we now have available and you know, you just look for things and plugging a word. And um, so, so I, I do think the search engines, um, Yahoo, others, you know, Google, et cetera, um, they have been quite important early on for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's revolutionary what you can access right now. So what's the last yeah. thing you just did on the internet? Hopefully memory serves better with that. <laughs> Um, so I'm serving as the academic dean now, and um, so my job here at Harvard is um, faculty hiring, faculty promotion, etc. And so I now find myself a lot, including this morning, you know, looking at people um, because there's so much information now available on the internet. Um, you know, plugging in a name of somebody who was at some other university that some colleague or some research paper kind of alerted me to and finding out more about that person. I'm like, wow, maybe we should try and um, attract this person to Harvard. So, yeah. So look at that. That's your, acad- that's your academic research and your managerial responsibilities coming together at yes. once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So now a little more thinking about the future. What do you think and hope the future of the Internet and digital life looks like? So I am... Um, uh, I mean, there's lots of hopes I have, but um, I'm going to go back to a bit of our early discussion. I hope we will get a better um, grasp off and grip on um, kind of bias uh, on the Internet, harassment um, um, in the digital world. Uh, I'm quite involved in uh, kind of research and um, research communities on algorithmic bias and kind of – so I, I, I am hoping that going back to the search engines that we just talked about, um, but not just search engines, but just everywhere, um, that we, we – the Internet becomes kind of um, more inclusive in, um, in how it presents itself, for example, when I plug in a search term. I'm also hoping um, – I'm just one more other hope um, – that – it becomes more generally available to many more people in this country and around the world because, as I said before, it is an amazing tool. Um, and, you know, obviously we have to learn how to use it. Our, our children have to learn how to use it. But uh, as we are improving the tool and making it more inclusive and less biased, um, I do think it's an amazing opportunity for the world. Oh, I couldn't agree more. What a terrific note to end things on. So thank you so much for joining us. And that wraps up another episode of Broadband Conversations. Thank you for being here. Thanks to everyone for listening. Take care.